this week on the Back Table Podcast. I just decided I was going to stop by. My conscience kept telling me, you need to really apologize for that. That was inappropriate. You handled it wrong. And there was a part of me that said, you don't need to apologize for anything. She's not moving quickly. Nothing's happening. I went in. I told her that I'd made a mistake. I was very apologetic about it. And I said, you know, I've been here at the University of Kansas for a very short period of time. I don't think I've made any enemies yet, and I didn't want you to be the first. It's just my naivety. It was a mistake, and it will never happen again. And I, you know, just let her know that from the bottom of my heart, I apologize. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is to those of you listening out there. This is Jay Shaw, and I have the distinct pleasure and honor of serving as the host for another episode of Backtable Urology. And I am beyond thrilled that I have the next hour to chat with Dr. Brantley Thrasher, who I'm sure many of you have already heard of. Well, we'll introduce Dr. Thrasher in a second. I'm going to spend the next hour talking to Brant about leadership, specifically, what does it mean to be a leader? What does it take? Dr. Thrasher, as, as you will see during the next hour, has had some very high-profile leadership positions and I look forward to having all of us learn from him. Brant, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I would try to introduce you, but I think I won't do you justice. I would love for you to introduce yourself and sort of tell us a little bit about you. Well, thanks. First, Jay, thank you for inviting me on. It's always an honor to uh, speak with you, and I'm looking forward to doing this Backtable series it's hard to kind of introduce yourself. I love to hear me introduced by someone else because a lot of times I'll finish and I'll say, you know, I don't know who they were talking about that. It sounded a little bit like me, but they always said, you know, people made it, make it very flattering. So I actually trained in the military. So I started off and went to Clemson University, went to uh, from there to Medical University of South Carolina. And then I was picked up by the military, went through the Health Profession Scholarships Program, Walter Reed. Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center, which has now been taken up by University of Colorado. From there, I went to Duke University for my cancer fellowship. And then I've had a variety of leadership positions. Started off with the AUA and a lot of different committees, uh, task forces, etc. That was by my own choice. I really wanted to do that. Wanted to help hone my leadership skills. Went through a variety of leadership programs. The executive uh, leadership program in the military and went through Command General Staff College in the military. I realized right away that I was young, that I needed to learn a lot more than just the military could teach me. I wanted to be in academics ultimately when I finished my military time. So I knew that I needed to hone some skills that maybe I had not been exposed to in the military training as well as military and I'd say staff position in Madigan Army Medical Center. I did six years there and I was the program director there. That helped running a residency program. When I took over at the University of Kansas Hospital, which a position that I held there for 18 years, stayed there 23 years before I took this job, I had opportunities in a variety of organized urology spots. The residency review committee, I was on that for seven years, on a variety again of uh, AUA committees, served on the American Board of Urology, served on the AUA Board of Directors as a section representative, went through the Harvard course for department chairs because I realized there were several other places that I wanted to do a little bit better on my leadership skills, hone some of those skills, and then moved on from there to the executive directorship of the American Board of Urology, where I am now. And so you can hear from all of that as I've sort of given you an overview that I've touched a lot of places in organized urology in the Society of Urologic Oncology, Society of Academic Urology, being president of those spots. But every time I made one of those moves, Jay, I really tried to make sure that I did some introspection and started really thinking to myself, where are the dents in the armor for my armamentarium to take over this leadership position? How can I make this organization better than I found it when I leave? And that's sort of the way I've always tried to address this. You know, when I hear people talk about leadership and I hear someone sit down and talk about what a great leader they are, and listen, I'm not saying that at all. That's the last thing I'm saying then it's always a little bothersome to me. It's sort of like Margaret Thatcher said one time, if you have to go around telling people you're a lady, you probably aren't. 
And so you have to be a little careful because I realize leadership is a skill that has to be learned and honed over time. And I'm still working on a lot of things. One of them is listening, trying to do a better job of listening. But yeah, that that's a little bit of an overview. And to tell you that I'm not quite there yet, I'm still working on it. I love that you just said that at your position, leadership is something that you're still working on. I think that is so key for everyone that's listening to this episode to realize it's not something you're just born with, or it's not something you just do for a little bit of time. It is a lifelong commitment to self-improvement in the service of others. So I, I love that someone that I see as one of the preeminent leaders in our field still says at this point, it's something that I work on actively daily. That's beautiful. So let's, let's take a step back and let's talk about leadership itself. You've heard a million people say this to you. We all hear this all the time where lots of people, particularly when they're younger in their careers, will say, I want to be a leader someday, or I want to be, and they'll often name a title specifically. You know, often the one we'll hear a lot is I want to be a chairperson someday. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how you view leadership in general and how you counsel people when they're thinking, oh yeah, maybe one day I'll be a leader. Or maybe, hey, like you said, I'm already a great leader now. How do you approach that? Well, I think one thing that you just said is I don't hear quite as frequently now. I have a tendency to ask people where they see themselves in 10 years. When they come into my office and ask for counsel, many times I'll ask that question. And one of the reasons for that, Jay, is that most of the time, I realize that if they don't know where they're going or where they see themselves in 10 years, I can't help them draw a roadmap to get there. So it's very difficult if you don't have an idea of where you'd like to be and why. So often I hear folks say that, yes, I'd like to be a division chief, I'd like to be a department chair, but then I will ask them, what exactly about that job intrigues you? What's your skill set? How do you think you would match and work well within the confines of that leadership position. So first I would say, you know, we have to make a distinction between leadership and management. Management's very different, at least in my mind and, and in many of the books that I've read, managing people, organizational charts, budgets, uh, all of those things are mainly task-oriented, COO-type things. If you're talking CEO and influencing the movement of an organization, the vision, the objectives, where we're headed and why, and getting people behind you to make those moves, then that's leadership. That's really influencing the organization and moving in a direction one way or the other. I think that many times people believe that those leadership positions are sort of like what they've heard of in the past, that authoritarian leadership where it's the leader at the top of the pyramid and everyone else is sort of there to serve them. And sometimes they picture department chair or CEO positions or executive director positions in that way. And I would say that chart needs to be flipped. That organizational chart has to be flipped. I do agree with you. You said something that I can't agree with more, and that's the business of, of servant leadership. And I think what's demanded of leaders today is very different than maybe what was demanded of me when I was in the military or the old sort of I, you know, you can use a number of names for people running companies back when they would come in and clean house and start all over. And the people were not important to the leader and they were just a resource, just like money. Nowadays, I think that a leader has to be very, I think they're looking for authenticity, transparency, and they want to make sure that you're looking after them personally and professionally. So that idea of, of servant leadership is critically important. So I say one thing to the people that say, I think I want to be a department chair. Say, well, then one thing I want to tell you is you need to get out of the mindset of me, me, me and into the mindset of we, we, we. It's all about the department and the people in it. And your particular career trajectory will probably start taking a little bit of a back seat if you're really going to look after the organization and the people in it. You know, I can vouch for the fact that everything you said is true. You and I had a conversation about five or six years ago. It was shortly after I had arrived at Stanford. I didn't have any leadership positions here yet, and I'd been approached by a couple of headhunter firms saying, oh, your name was suggested for a chair position here. Your name was suggested for a chair position. And internally, I didn't feel ready. And I was going through this struggle of, well, if my name is suggested, shouldn't I go and take a look at least? I had just gotten to Stanford. I'd been there for a hot minute. 
I knew that I hadn't done anything at Stanford yet. I was hopeful that my best years were still ahead of me at Stanford. And I remember talking to you at our national meeting, saying, hey, what, what do you think I ought to do about this? And your words still ring in my head where you said, look, don't go chasing those titles just because they're being dangled in front of you. Just do the work of developing yourself. And, you know, I think the word you use were, where are the dents in the armor? Just figure out in what ways do you still need to grow and keep working on that. In fact, if you jump into the, the race, it may consume you and you start thinking, that's what I need to do. And if you end up getting one of those positions before you're ready, that may end up being one of the hardest things you've done because you're going to take on a role that you're not ready for. Instead, just resist the temptation to say, I'm just going to go check it out. Just do the work, check your ego, and just see what happens. And I know now, fast forwarding six years later, as the chief of staff of Stanford Hospital, I can't tell you how transformative that conversation between the two of us was for me because I got to Stanford. I had already been at Stanford, but I just was busy being a student of leadership. I was literally a student enrolled. Dr. Skinner, my chair, was, was really good about, about enrolling me in several of the leadership development programs that we had here. And I came to realize I know so little. There's so much to work on. And that growth over those last three or four years, I think, has been so much more meaningful to me than if I'd had a chair position that, that I wasn't ready to do a good job at yet. Yeah, you know, I think that you hit on so many important points. One of them is obviously mentorship and sponsorship. And I think that understanding where you may or may not have the skill set at the time and then leaning on your mentors, and I can think of so many of them, John DeKernian, I was one, Dick Williams, another, Jack Mackinich, another for me, folks in the military, John Wetlaufer, John Weigel, that I really leaned on. I mean, I went to them and I said, you know, I've been offered this, that, or the other. And they would tell me very honestly, Jay Smith told me one time, you're not ready for that yet. It hurts your feelings sometimes, but I think it's very important that you walk back. You know, someone told me one time that when you hear things hurtful like that, whether it's truly critical or not, most of the time there's a kernel of truth somewhere. There's a kernel of truth in there somewhere, and you need to find it. And as I sort of did a little bit of introspection and thinking, hey, Brent, you know, where are you in, you know, this whole path right now? He was right. Is you know, you're just not well enough known. You haven't done enough in a leadership position. You haven't been in true academia yet. And one thing that you really learn is just as you said, Jay, you did it, I think, the absolute right way. Keep your head down, your mouth shut, you do the work, you network. You know, one of the things that I found so important when I got out of the military is that when you go into academia or you go into a large private practice, it really doesn't matter. People there have rank. They just don't wear it on their shoulder. And so it's very sort of hard to figure out. You need to really network, spend time with people. And I always say this too. I've been told, I can't tell you, probably a thousand times in academics, never tell them what you're thinking. Never trust the institution. Walk out the door. Don't even pack your stuff. Don't let them know you're leaving. That's never the way I've done things. I don't think I deal with them honestly, and I expect them to do the same to me until they prove me wrong. And most of the time, doing succession planning or letting them know honestly where I stand on something, to me, has been the most productive thing I've ever done. People realize that your yes is your yes and your no is your no. And integrity is critically important because the people that you're leading have to trust you. It's built on trust. And if they feel like you, they can trust you and you're looking after them, they'll walk through walls for you. So I do believe that, you know, having those people that can bring you up in those leadership positions, watching people that have that character in action, which is leadership, I think, you know, watching that is, to me, that's how I really learned and how I still learn. One thing I told you already that I, that I suffer from, I don't listen enough. My brain is usually trying to formulate the next answer before I let someone finish talking. And what you find is that people that are, that are what I call active listeners, they're really engaged. They're really digesting what you're having to say. They're interested. That They feel empowered. And I think that that's something I work on all the time. I'm getting better at it, but you can tell I've still got a ways to go. I want to push back a little bit on what you just said. As my homework for our conversation today, I spoke to some folks that, that have worked with you and have uh, sort of been a beneficiary of your leadership. And the consistent message that I got, I'm going to read to you from my notebook here. Uh, I won't tell you who said these unless you ask me offline later on, but Dr. Thrasher's most unique skills is his ability to make time and listen. Five minutes with him seems like 30 minutes of wisdom. 
He listens attentively and responds thoughtfully. Somebody else said he remembers details about people. He's genuinely interested in people. So I think you may be being hard on yourself, but I agree with you. I think there's always room for all of us to keep improving on these things. And I don't think there's anyone that's figured out listening perfectly. Perfectly, I think I love that even if you are amazing at it, even if others think you're amazing at it, the fact that you have a goal for yourself and you're holding yourself to the high standard, I think is fantastic. I want to come back to something that you said just a couple of minutes ago where you said where your yes is your yes and your no is your no when you lead with integrity. I think one of the things that a lot of young leaders struggle with, or I guess a lot of people in general struggle with, is having difficult conversations where a lot of times you'll know beforehand what you think about something. If it were a multiple choice question, you'd know what the right answer would be. And in the moment during that conversation, there's this part that's conflict avoidant for a lot of people. And I think that's one of the things that most young leaders struggle with in just how do I say this difficult thing I need to say? I know it's not what this other person wants to hear. And yet, as you know better than most of us, you have to go through that conversation to get to the other side of whatever change or whatever work you're doing. I think you're exactly right. I find that some of the young leaders now have two issues that really bother them. One is is those confrontational or uncomfortable conversations. And the second is a fear of failure. I'll tell you, those are two things that I hear more than I ever heard before as I have young folks that come to me and want to talk about leadership and leadership positions. So I'll address the first one. I tell people that are coming up that want to come to me and say, you know, I'm one of the junior faculty members here. I'd really like to spend some time with you. And could we set something up so maybe once a month we have a conversation when we're at this meeting, that meeting, we'll definitely get together. And, and I always want to do it that way. I think that when people tell you that they're going to sponsor you or that they're their mentor, and then you ask them, well, you know, I just want to put you on paper. Well, that, that's not mentorship. And I agree with you. That's a hard thing because that's human nature. You don't want to disappoint. You don't want them to be disappointed in you. You want to make sure that you're like. The unfortunate truth is that won't always be the case. So I do think that there come times when those conversations have to occur. But I'll tell you this. I have found that if your yes is your yes and your no is your no, they may disagree with you, but they will certainly respect you for being upfront and black and white and always try to be equitable. The one place where I find people have a hard time with that is if they've got someone they're a little closer to in the workplace and they don't treat them the same way they do others. And that's where the equitable side of things, being fair and equitable, is so critically important. If you're going to create a policy or an SOP that you're going to follow as a leader, you need to follow it with everyone, including yourself. So every leader should be thinking the same way. You're not above the law and you're not above policy. For most folks, I tell them, you want to set an example, you should be the first one in, the last one to leave, and therefore them at the end of the day, if you want to talk about something, they'll respect that. But they're definitely going to respect you telling them no when you mean no, rather than saying yes and find a roundabout way of cutting their feet out from under them. The second thing, though, Jay, to expound on that is that I find so many young folks these days are scared of, of failing at their job. And they don't want to take a position because of that. And I always talk about Abe Lincoln. You know, that's someone that failed 16 times before he became probably our most or arguably the most uh, important and recognizable figure in our democracy. He saved the democracy. In 1860, he became our president. Probably, I think, the most important president. Through You talk about taking us through some tumultuous times. I always use that the same way I use the same quote from Shedd that said, a ship that's in safe harbor will always be safe, but it will never do what it was meant to do, which is sail on the open sea. So if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat, as they say. And so, you know, once in a while, you're going to have to take those chances. And I try to create, try to, in my mind, I try to think of successes and failures the same way. And I fail, I can't tell you hundreds of times at things, learn from it, okay? Failure doesn't necessarily define you, and neither do your successes. You can't live on those laurels. The fact that you, you, you generally need to thank the people around you that made that success possible and move on. That is not necessarily what Brent Thrasher needs to hang that medal on his chest and then continue to show that off. I think that you need to definitely make sure that you thank the people that help you get there and move on to something else, because uh, both of those are learning experiences in my mind, and they don't necessarily define you. 
I want to say those last two points out loud to get it to sink in my own head. Your failures don't define you, and neither do your successes. I have to say, I am very much guilty of, of what you just spoke about in terms of that need to be liked and that the fear of confrontation and that fear of failure. And what I'm learning that the job of leadership just inherently built into it is disapproval of some segment of the population. Unless you're, you know, somehow uniquely gifted, you will fail. We're no longer just doing a technical job. You're not just moving widgets from point A to point B or just making more widgets. You are working with humans. As with all complex human systems, there are no guarantees. You said you're working on listening. One of the things I'm working on is learning to be okay, not being liked by everybody. Because if you have a high enough leadership position, you are making decisions that are so important that someone is always going to be unhappy about it. If they were the easy, obvious decisions, they probably wouldn't come to your desk. I appreciate what you just said about the learning to be okay with failure. And I love how you put it about you're not defined by your failures or your successes. Kind of balances the equation for me very nicely. Because it is tempting to say, oh, look at that great thing I did. Got that great thing. Those don't define you. Well, I tell you, my kids, I used to come home and when my son was alive and my daughter still is, she's a nurse and nurse practitioner out at our second year of nurse practitioner out in Kansas City in the NICU. And they used to say, you know, I would make a comment about having to do something the next day that was going to make me very uncomfortable. And they go, Dad, what are you so worried about? I mean, you've been here so long. They're not going to fire you. And I said, sweetheart, let me explain something to you. They're looking at me this way. It's 90% what I can do for this organization in the future and 10% what I've done in the past. So the fact that I've done some good things in the past, that's in the rearview mirror. <laughs> I can tell you the CEO doesn't think of it that way. They're looking to the future. That's how I should be looking at it and moving forward instead of trying to live on the laurels. And uh, I think it's also very human nature to say, how in the world could you ask me to do this? Think about all I've done for you in the past. That's not the way it works. Well, you know, I know this is not the point of this conversation, but I just want to pause real quick. You said something important. I don't want to glean over it. I didn't realize in the past that you'd lost a son. I don't know why the circumstances. I just want to apologize to you. I can, as a father, I can only imagine the, the difficult times you've been through. And I, I appreciate you sort of opening up about that a little bit. So I'm not going to ask any more questions about it, but just to say, I'm sorry for what you've been through. Oh, thank you very much. I found just as an off on that, that there are three types of folks that I encountered after I lost my son. One group that wanted to completely avoid you because they were uncomfortable talking to you about it. Uh, and it's been a while back, so I think that a lot of the rawness is gone, but uh, still there. And then the second group that, that said, hey, I know exactly what you're going through. And because I lost an aunt, I lost a father. Like, nah, you, everyone's different. That's not helpful. And then the third are the people that just say, you know what? All I can tell you is my sincere condolences. If I could do anything for you, and I mean it, pick you up at the airport, go get groceries, bring you a meal. I'll, I'm there for you. And those are the folks that I really look up to now and say, thank you so very much because you helped me through one of the hardest times in my life. But thanks for saying so. Yeah, sure. Of course. Of course. And I want to come back to, to our conversation about leadership. Do you ever, I want to be careful how I phrase this. Do you ever discourage people from pursuing leadership? You mentioned how a lot of younger folks will come to you and say, I want to be this. I want to be division chief, department chair, et cetera. But when they talk, are there ever moments where you say, you know what? You're going to be a really good frontline urologist or, or whatever the situation would be. Yes. Ooh, say more. Well, let me tell you, there have been so many, I would say more often than not, Jay, I will discourage people from a particular position. If I know them relatively well, I've worked with them in the past, and I can tell it's not going to be a beautiful marriage. If I can tell them, and I do tell them, I don't think that's your skill set. I see you in this position. Well, I don't see myself the same way. Sort of like doing a 360, you know, if they grade themselves a 10, you give them a two, it's not quite working out. So yes, the answer is yes. And again, sometimes painfully honest as people were with me, trying to tell me this is where your dents in the armor are, Brent. You really need to buff up on this or you're never going to be able to do this, this, or this. And then they were right. I had some dents. I was young and I really had a lot to learn. But I will also tell you that Many times the people that come to me and ask that question and I'm having to give them a negative answer, many times those folks are just using me as a sounding board. And if I don't tell them what they want to hear, they move on to someone else. So I'm not so sure that many times that's necessarily productive, but they listen to me all the time. 
I've had a few that have said, you were absolutely right. I looked at that position. This was six years ago. You might not remember you told me you didn't think it was right for me. I didn't take it. And I think I would have been miserable because I know who did and this is what's happened. So the answer is yes. I think that's another place where it could be hurtful to have to tell a friend that I just don't feel like you have that skill set and this job is going to require blank, blank, and blank. And you have the educational administrative side, but you really don't have the leadership skills to take over the organization, be a visionary, and take it to the next level. And that's what they're looking for right now. So the answer is yes. I mean, I, I had people tell me that when I looked at a dean's job. I looked at three or four dean's jobs, and they just said, Brent, I just don't see you taking those that particular job, being administrator, consistently having to rob Peter to pay Paul, robbing from clinicians to cross, you know, to basically do cross-subsidy for the researchers, et cetera. And the more I thought about it and the more I did the interviewing, the more I realized it wasn't a job for me. So good advice. And sometimes the best advice can also be the advice you didn't necessarily want to hear, but you need to go back and do some soul searching. So the answer is yes. I've been a little loquacious about it. That's ex- I do that probably more often than anything else, Jake. Yeah. And I think it gets back to what you were saying earlier, where you want your yes to mean yes and your no to mean no. It gets back to the integrity. Because I think for you, what would end up happening is if you said yes when you meant no, is then you may have to go write a recommendation letter for that person. And you're sort of caught in this cycle and it doesn't help anybody to do that. So I want to rewind just a little bit. Something you said in that last answer, you said, I just don't think you have the leadership qualities. Yes, you have the administrative skills. Can you say a little more concretely what those qualities might be? What are those leadership qualities that you were referring to or that you're imagining in your head? You know, it's interesting that many of the people that I see that want the job want the title. They're selfish. I don't think they have the best interest of the organization or the people that work within the organization in mind. I can tell a lot about someone just on the way they treat the nurses on the ward or the MA that's down in the clinic. And when I watch people act to their subordinates in a very disrespectful way, I can tell right away it's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem for them. And I think that there are still a fairly large group of folks that are thinking about their career more than they are taking the organization to the next level, which is, as I said before, more we, we, we than me, me, me. And to take that next step, I have to see some sign that they're ready for that. Additionally, I have to also see that the people that are below them and the people that are their peers and even the people above them give them the respect. And they really feel like, you know, this is someone that I'm willing to listen to, that I'm willing to follow. Because I can tell you, people know right away if they can trust someone or if they can't. They know right away if you really care about them personally and professionally, and they really know if their interest is important to you at all. If it's really your interest and your way or the highway, as I said before, that sort of authoritarian way of leading, then I'm going to say right off the bat, I say, well, I I don't think this is going to be for you. I think that you need to really go back and rethink that. You've got some skills, no question. But I'm not so sure leading an organization in that capacity or this capacity is going to be right for you. And if they ask the question, and many times they do, I'll tell them exactly what I told you. This is why I think that's the case. All right. So now I want to focus on, on your leadership specifically for a little bit, as far as your experience goes. You were the chair of urology at Kansas for, I think you said, 16 or 18 years. And you were the president of the AUA president of the Society of Urological Oncology as well. And I think now you're you're chair of the Society of Urology Chairpersons, right? Is that still accurate? Or No, I actually started the organization with a committee, the Society of Academic Urologists. So the chair I had run the SUCPD, yes, but we formed the new Society of Academic Urology, which was a combination of SUU and SUCPD, the chair people and And the program directors were then sort of combined into one, found that there was an awful lot of of overlap. So yes, I did did oversee that. And uh, actually, um, along with some folks from the Wiser Group, actually drew up the articles of of incorporation, bylaws, all that sort of thing. It was formed, you know, and I took over. I said, I think this is something that needs to be done, but nobody really wants to do it simply because nobody wants to give up their leadership position in the different organizations. And after getting people together from both organizations, and working out a negotiable position, it worked out well. Let me ask you about the leadership positions that you've had. What has been the hardest thing to do for you as a leader? 
What's the part of leadership that you've struggled with the most personally? I think, boy, there's a lot of them. <laughs> to give it a number one, to me, one of the hardest things for Brand Thrasher sometimes, if you go in dead set on a particular direction, and there is where listening is so critically important, I have had a hard time changing my mind and changing directions based on the rest of the group. It could be the department. It could be other department chairs. It could be leadership positions like the SUO. I think listening, really actively listening and trying to go back and assimilate it. One of the hardest things when you go in and you think you've got the right answer, you think that this is right for the organization, you're dead set on it, is to then change course because people are not seeing it the same way or you're getting a tremendous amount of pushback. Then you've got to look, you've got to refocus, you've got to really listen, but not only listen, but go back and rethink through the whole process. And that's been one of the hardest things for me. Not that Brent Thrasher is ever the smartest guy in the room. That's not the way I do things. Most of the time I hire people that are a lot smarter than me. And then if I lead that group and they're very successful, I rise to the top with them. I look better because I hired a lot of very smart people that don't intimidate me at all. I can listen to them. But that's sometimes the hardest thing. You've got really, really bright people, which I've been fortunate to work with. You've got to really listen to them. You know, George Patton said one time, you make sure that you hire talented people and let them do their job. Don't micromanage them. And I think that's one of the keys, trying sometimes to change my mind based on some of these smart people trying to give me some tutelage, even if it's someone that's a it's one of the junior faculty. I've learned to listen a lot better because of that, because most of the time, well, many times they're right. But it's really hard to sit back and accept that when there are some of these folks coming in and telling you, hey, Brent, I think you got this wrong. I've learned to give it a little bit of time before I automatically bark back up. Um, I've learned that many times that there probably, there's more than a kernel of truth that might be the direction we want to take. And you know, your, your comments remind me that for, for all of us growing up, going to medical school, wanting to be very high level physicians, we were always taught the goal was to be the smartest person in the room, get the highest score, be the smartest person. Once you get into some leadership positions, you quickly realize that if you're the smartest person in every room, you got some work to do around your teams. You, the goal is to be the dumbest person in the room. Because if you assume that you're a certain level of smart, if everyone is smarter than you, then your institution has a chance of doing some good work. Yeah, I think you're right on. You hit on something that is so critical to success of a good leader. I don't think you could be afraid of talent. I know so many leaders that are. I mean, when it comes down to hiring someone, they go, oh, no, that person that come in here caused trouble. It wasn't they were going to come in and cause trouble. They were going to be a bit of a challenge. You know, they were going to challenge you with things. That should be, you know, John DeCurnia told me that years and years ago. Do not be afraid to pay a premium price for a talented person and then listen to them. Give them what they need to succeed. Don't give them everything they say they want. You give them what they need to succeed and support them. And you'll be surprised because as a leader like that, rather than saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed first and everybody else gets the crumbs. Once you have that group of very bright people that are extremely successful, you're going to see that you as a leader are going to, whether it's true or not, you're going to look good anyway because you hired these very you know, smart people that have done incredible things. And I've been very fortunate with that, Jay. I think that that's something I learned a long time ago. Although, you know, you feel a bit challenged with it. Sometimes you want to push back. It's a hard thing to necessarily always give up the, the fact that, you know, you're not right all the time. I think that's sometimes hard. But I realized early on that there's so many smart people in urology. I showed a slide when I was president of the AUA. It shows that if we look at all the surgical subspecialties, we're one of the specialties. We are one of the hardest, almost... Many, many years, the hardest to match you to just look at numerator denominator. And so you're going to have smart people are a dime a dozen in urology. You just have to make sure you get those folks in there that, that are going to be able to, to row the same direction you're rowing in. Get them on the bus and support them, and you'd be surprised what can be accomplished. Well, I can certainly say as a neutral observer of University of Kansas program, the KU program, that you built. I know you're not officially there anymore, but the, the bench was so deep there. While you were there and even now, I think it's got... Some phenomenal leaders but with Jeff there, Eugene, Levine, David, there's Hadley, Will. There's so many people so deep there. So I think you've lived what you're speaking about. I want to focus on, on something else that might be a little bit negative, but I'm hoping you'll go with me on this. Looking back over the arc of your career and your leadership journey, 
What's the biggest mistake you've ever made or the stupidest thing you've done in terms of your leadership roles? No comment is not an okay answer. No, it's one that uh, I made a mistake and I was very fortunate that my conscience told me I needed to go apologize, but I'll tell you what it was. When I took over the University of Kansas, I was 37. I had absolutely no business being there. And now that I've, that I've been there and that we have such a great village of people, I'm not going to give it back, but I will say I had no business taking that job. And I really only got that job because no one else wanted it. And at the time, they'd lost a lot of very good people. I went in, I did my due diligence, I called around, looked at the demographics. But one thing that happened, and you'll, you'll probably appreciate this, Jay, I couldn't get any space. I couldn't get OR time. I couldn't get office space. I couldn't recruit. It was really just like, you know, every day, it was like beating my head against the wall. And so I actually had a lady that was the department chair in pathology. She had an emeritus professor that was basically taking a office that I was told we were okay to have, but it needed to be handled very gently and needed to be handled by that department chair. And I made the mistake of going over her head and calling the associate provost who handles the space and saying, this needs to happen. You know, this needs to be because I've got to have space for this person and nothing's happening quickly. And that was my impatience and my immaturity. When it got back to her, boy, to say she was angry would be an understatement. And one morning about the day after, maybe two days after, I was walking past the office I had to go through radiology, get to my office, and her office was close. I just decided I was going to stop by. My conscience kept telling me, you need to really apologize for that. That was inappropriate. You handled it wrong. And there was a part of me that said, you don't need to apologize for anything. She's not moving quickly. Nothing's happening. I went in. I told her that I'd made a mistake. I was very apologetic about it. And I said, you know, I've been here at the University of Kansas for a very short period of time. I don't think I've made any enemies yet, and I didn't want you to be the first. It's just my naivety. It was a mistake and it will never happen again. And I, you know, just let her know that from the bottom of my heart, I apologize. Make a long story short, that lady became our dean. And that lady allowed me to actually become a department when I applied for it. I pushed for that. But she also had several people that had caused her some problems that were in divisions and they were let go when we all became departments. In fact, several. So I look back on it now, and it was a God thing, I think. I said enough prayers about it. Maybe listening to that small, still voice sometimes is a very important thing. But, you know, it's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And so I hopefully did the right thing. It was a big mistake. I freely admit it. I should have handled that by just talking to her, letting things move at her pace, because that was the appropriate thing. Letting her talk to this emeritus faculty who had been there for 30 years and deserved to have a respectful way out. And so anyway, I learned from that. But luckily, you could tell I was still there after all that. <laughs> I wasn't fired my first year. It was probably the right thing to do just what I did. I learned from it. You know, I want to reflect on that for a minute. I agree with you that it was a mistake. And I'm also remarking, it's notable to me how in that mistake, you actually demonstrated your leadership to her. And not, not with the, the decision to go above her head, but in the way that you handled it once you realize a mistake. I think for a lot of leaders, I think what defines you is not when everything is fine. You know, when everything's going just fine, there's not too much opportunity to define yourself. It's when things are really bad, whether it's an external crisis or an internal crisis that you create with something stupid or some, you know, sort of ill thought plan. It's how you respond to that that I think is defining. And if you don't respond to it, then you do get defined by the initial act itself. So I think, yes, it was not your wisest moment probably as a chair to do that. And yet so much wisdom after that too. Because you're right, every instinct inside you says, that's going to feel awkward. That's that difficult conversation that we were talking about earlier that a lot of people run from instead of leaning into. You know, it's funny that you said that because... You know, when my son, and I don't mind bringing this up again, the son passed away, there's a lot going on. We were being taken over by, we were forming an integrated healthcare system, and they had put me in charge of one of the biggest controversial areas, which is what do we do with each department? We're federated. They all have their own reserve funds, and it had added up to be about $150 million out there. How do we then pool that into the integrated system, but people don't lose control? And it took a lot of late nights, a lot of things going on. In the meantime, things happened. My son passed away. 
It was a rough time, but I knew there were people depending on me in the healthcare system as well as at home and in my department. And so it took a lot of juggling there and it took, you know, some some time to say, you know, I can either respond to this by curling up in the corner and, and, and you know, sucking my thumb, becoming very depressed, or I could do what I think the rest of the family and department, integrated healthcare system hired me to do, which is be a leader in a difficult time and make sure that you, you drive on, you get past those things. Our church was critically important to helping us get through that. I don't know how people that are sort of non-believers, you know, they have their stretcher bearers come on board, but I had so many people that came to us and so I don't think we actually made a meal for two weeks. So for me, it was almost, it made me feel better to get back to work, to get my mind off of it, but also to complete what I committed to do. And there's one other thing that you said, Jay, that is so critically important. People are going to look at you the closest when you're going through tr- troubling times and they'll see how you respond. You're either a bouncer or a splatter. You know, when you hit bottom, you're either going to splat or you're going to bounce. And I say all the time, this is one of the things that came out of Sprint. I was in the University of Kansas. They were interviewing for a vice president job. And this is a true story. One of the guys that was one of the VPs that was already there was absolute front runner. They took a break during the interview and they went down to the cafeteria and they all ate. They came back up. He didn't get the job. And in the post interview, she said, wait a minute, I was told this was my job to lose. What happened? They said, we noticed when you were going through the cafeteria line, you took a couple of slices of butter and you hid it underneath your loaf of bread or your roll. That's this 20 cents. He said, yes. And we know if you would do that with 20 cents, what would you do with 20 million? And so I, I think that's another thing is what you do when no one's looking is also a way of, in my mind, defining your character. It's what you do in the dark that counts. So I would just make sure people think about that when they're leading, because if you're not doing it with honesty and integrity, I can tell you there were Fortune 500 CEOs asked what's the most important attribute of a leader, and 100 of them said honesty. And so the most critically important. So I think for me, that's been, it's been a critical issue is trying to make sure you do follow the golden rule, treat people uh-huh. the way you want to be treated. You know, to build on that just a little bit in terms of you, know, you shared about how when you were going through your hard time and decided you want to just curl up in a corner and suck on your thumb. I think the thing that I've learned by doing it the wrong way is that in going through my own hard times, what I've tried to do is to hide it and say, you know what, I just need to put on this happy face, perfect, I've got my act together face. And I realize now looking back, that doesn't actually work. You're not doing as good a job hiding it, whatever it happens to be for you, as you think you are. And the ways that it's leaking into the, the rest of the world is never going to serve you well. It's going to affect your leadership. It's going to affect your technical competence. It's going to affect your judgment. And I think it's only when you can be totally square with who you are as a leader, owning all the difficult parts as well and saying, yes, this is who I am. I'm imperfect and I'm trying to do a great job at this, but I'm not pretending to be perfect. Let's, you know, will you go along with me? And I realized that was my mistake that, that I wish I could go back and change. You know, one thing too, Jay, to just sort of uh, use that as a bit of a springboard, I think people respect you more too when you tell them what your weakness is. When I came into this job, I had not been, you know, in, in the assessment business like many of the people prior to me. Stu Howards was one, Jerry Jordan. That was the dent in my armor. And I told them at the interview, I said, this is where I really have to learn. I need to sit down with the psychometricians. I need to spend some time getting up to speed. I mean, I had done the money side of things. Finance was a strong point for me. I thought the leadership administrative side was a strong point for me. But, and I'd run the research committee before. So I felt like I knew a lot of the parts of the organization. But people, I think, really like it when you say, this is my weakness. This is a place I really want to beef up. They are more than willing most of the time to not only listen to you, but help you. I mean, actively help you strengthen that particular weak position. Absolutely agree with you. I'm keeping an eye on the clock, and I notice that we're coming toward the end. I just want to ask you one or two final questions. At the beginning of our conversation, you had mentioned some books. You said, you know, in, in the books that I read, etc. A lot of people will often ask that when I'm coaching them or talking to them. They'll say, hey, what books do you recommend? I have some thoughts of my own, but I'd love to hear from you when people ask you that. Are there particular books or other resources to help people grow their leadership that you point them toward? Gosh, there's so many. There's one that I've been alluding to. Anything by John Maxwell, I've really liked. I've really read a number of John Maxwell leadership books. 
I will tell you the one by Hunter called uh, The Servant is an outstanding leadership book. I think another one by Angela Duckworth, Grit, I think is an excellent book, not only to help you with leadership, but I think more than that, to sort of figure what is your passion? What is it that drives you? Why is it you have a particular drive to do this, that, or the other? I've read a couple. Let's see, Brooks had one that was called The Road to Character that I thought was very good. He also wrote a second one called Second Mountain. I had one I read by Carla Harris recently that was on leadership. And it was, again, talking more about servant leadership in the corporate world, in the world of finance. But all of the ones that I've read, and I've probably read many, many books on leadership. I learned something from all of them. And I will tell you that uh, I'm constantly looking at the Wall Street Journal when people are talking about leadership positions and what should and shouldn't be done. And then, again, I've taken a lot of courses, taken an, an awful lot of time to try to read on executive leadership. And so I've looked up a couple of books. There are two or three books I read before I took this job on executive leadership in for nonprofits, which is something that I've also wanted to make sure that I was sort of up to snuff on. But those are some of the main ones that I would recommend, Jay. What, what about some from you? I could maybe give me another book list here. <laughs> yeah, I'm even happy to send them to you. The, the one book that, that I will often recommend to people when they first ask is a book that if I've now read four or five times. I, a lot of my coaches, I will say, hey, start with this one. It's called Crucial Conversations. It's back to what, what you and I were talking about. Where it's one of the hardest things in life is just having the difficult conversations. And it's in being able to have those that you can make the most progress. So the thing that I also tell a lot of people, and I, by the way, I have a piece of paper here with about 20 different books. I keep adding to it. Similar to you, I am constantly always in at least one or two books at a time. I'm reading a book right now that, that Rob Svatek, who, as you know, is the chair at UT San Antonio, recommended. It's right back here called The, the War of Art. It's a, a takeoff on the art of war. It has nothing to do with war, by the way, but it's more about getting things done and then breaking down your own internal resistance. The way I see these books or you know Harvard Business Review articles, whatever it is you want to look at, when people ask me that, I, I always have some ready suggestions, but I always try to reframe it a little bit for them saying, yeah, here's books I've read, and here's books I'm reading now. There's a long list of books I still want to read. It's equivalent to me of someone coming up to me at the gym and saying, hey, tell me one exercise I should do. Like, yeah, I can certainly recommend it physically. Go do bench press, go do pull-ups, go do squats. That alone, if you do it one time, is not going to change your life. It's more, you have to change your mindset of, I am constantly trying to improve my fitness. And I go to the gym to do that. And there's lots of different things that I can do. And depending on what feels weak in the moment, I may focus on this or that. Similarly, I think with leadership, it's to me, I view it as a mindset. There's not a set finite number of books you'll read and then you're good for the rest of your life. As you, know, as you started off our conversation saying, we are all in evolution. We are constantly changing. The situations that we have to deal with are constantly changing. So I'm always also looking for another good book to read. And in the totality of all the books that, that I'll read, maybe eventually I'll keep growing and get to a point where there are fewer dents in my armor, to use your phrase from earlier. You've really put it in a great perspective. Is leadership is a skill that has to be constantly learned and refined. And I do believe, you know, you hear these people talking about, well, I can tell you our quarterback in high school was a natural born leader. No, he, he was probably a promiscuous athlete just way ahead of his time. Not necessarily. You go back to your 40th high school reunion, you'll see what I'm talking about. That's usually not the case. But I'm, it takes me back to, I was doing a cystoscopy on a priest, and I, I was telling him some things I was struggling with. And that day before, I'd been in the operating room, things were going horribly, and I started cursing about, I need this, I need a full vascular proline, get it now. They were all talking and not paying attention. Anyway, I started cursing a little bit. One of the nurses came up and whispered in here, I thought you said you were a Christian. Well, that kind of hurt my feelings. I shut up about it. I apologized that I shouldn't have been cursing the room. So I told the father that story. And he said, my son, the next time someone says that to you, make sure you let them know that churches are hospitals for sinners. They're not mausoleums for saints. And I just said, wow, what I need to say is that I'm a work in progress. And I'm a work in progress in everything that goes on in life. You know, my beliefs, my religion, my leadership skills, my exercise routine, that's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Same thing with your diet. 
So I feel the same way. This is a steady diet of learning something. You know, somebody asks me, well, why do you read all these books? Do you really get one thing out of there? And I say, you know, I get more than one thing, and I learn a little something every single time I read something. It may not be something where the, you know, you get this shock and a bright light and some revelation, but I'm learning a little something all the time and recognizing where my weaknesses are when there's a lot of those. You know, I realized, Brett, I could keep talking to you probably for another couple of hours. This is... feel the exact same way. I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time. I want to give you the opportunity to, to have the final word for just any other tidbits of advice or any other pearls that, that you want to share with the listenership here with regards to leadership and, and what it means to you or what it takes to be a leader. Well, I would just end by saying that for the people that are listening that really want to be in a leadership position, realize that you, you need to find someone, a good mentor, to help you in that journey. People that you can lean on, people that can help you with the areas where you do have dents in your armor, realize it's a lifelong learning experience. And I would just say that following that golden rule is probably one of the most important things you can do in any position that you're in. But it's certainly a skill that, in my mind, needs to not only be learned, but also needs to be honed over time. And when I hear people say, well, I'm not going to that talk, it's a leadership talk, and I'm already a leader, and I don't need to, you know, I've got nothing further to learn, I already realize right then they've admitted to me that they probably need to be there more than anyone else. But that's, and you know, when people talk about strong leadership, never admitting that you're wrong, that's wrong leadership. That's not what it's all about. And so I do think that what we've been talking about is a little bit of that, you know, change in paradigm, that, that upside-down organizational chart. And as you said with the exercise program, it's a lifelong learning experience if you really want to be good at it. That's a beautiful, beautiful summation of our entire conversation. Brent, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me. Thank you for everything you've done for our field over the last 20, 25 years. I know that this, this episode is going to be so meaningful to so many people. I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you as I keep making my own mistakes and say, hey, Brent, help me dig my way out of this. Uh, Keep your phone close by for that, please. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. And Jay, congratulations on all your successes. I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot more of them. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.